I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, from ancient explorers and pilgrims to modern-day backpackers and jet-setters, travel has always been in our DNA, and maybe for good reason. It's safe to say that neurologically, time slows down when you travel. It's almost as if the years of travel are not subtracted to your life. You're, you're living in this newly engaged way. But I think that's why when you come home from a journey, time has been so stretched out for you because you're encountering new things. And later, how bucket list destinations, websites, and apps actually limit our travel experiences. Sometimes we've limited our options as travelers because we're sort of all in lockstep in a certain way, and we're not leaving ourselves open to surprise. Following our phone, we're looking at a screen as a window into a place that we've traveled so far to, to come to instead of just sort of following our nose or following our eyes or following our ears. From the banks of the Ganges to the grasslands of Kansas, traveler Rolf Potts on the many surprising gifts that come with travel. That's coming up on Life Examined. As many of you have gathered, I love travel and have been lucky to spend time in some far-flung destinations like Tibet, Iran, East Africa, and more. But I also enjoy exploring closer to home, walking, hiking, biking, you name it. This week and next, we're going to look at travel with two acclaimed travel writers. Next week, one of our favorite guests, Pico Iyer, will join me. But we'll kick it off this week with well-known vagabond and explorer Rolf Potts. So what's the reason we travel, and why do millions like me love to hit the road? From our earliest ancestors, we've always been travelers. It's in our genes, first as nomadic tribes, later as raiders, traders, and colonizers. Whether by ship or by foot, it's human nature to move and explore. The two-week vacation and discount airfares help normalize travel and make it affordable. And today, travel-friendly apps, GPS, and even remote work are making it easier than ever to get out the door. But does easy access and affordability translate into a better experience? Should we dump bucket list destinations and 10-page exotic itineraries in favor of the road less traveled? Acclaimed travel writer Rolf Potts has long touted the merits of travel. In his latest book, The Vagabond's Way, Potts explains why travel is good for us and how it's the unexpected in a journey that can change us for the better. Well, Rolf Potts, welcome to Life Examined. It's great to have you. I'm happy to be talking to you, Jonathan. I'm really interested in just how far back the travel experience goes uh, in terms of being human, like how much of a part of the human experience and story is travel. I, we think of it as such a modern invention with planes and trains and all that stuff. But do you get a sense that this is just part of who we are? We've always been travelers? Absolutely. And in fact, it's much more historically recent that humans have become settled. Uh, no, mm. Nomadism was the condition of man. I mean, there's parts of the world where people still live nomadic lives. And of course, now we have a, a modern iteration of that called digital nomadism. But maybe more than 10,000 years ago, people traveled in small bands together and um, or a little bit later, they followed herds. And it was actually, uh, historians have found that it was actually a pretty healthy way to live. Mm. Um, and uh, so, yeah, in, in a sense, when we talk about travel, some aspects of travel bring us back to that early condition of being human. In those early days, I mean, I, I imagine that travel was also just part of, of survival, of, of moving to new areas. I mean, what do you think the experience was like? Do we have any idea of that? They do. And I, I'm not a historian. I'm, I'm not an expert on this, but I think that you followed the herds or you followed uh, the seasons to find out where food was or you... You um, uh, were, were on the run from more powerful tribes back in the day, um, but cohesively, like nobody, it wasn't just something that one gender or one certain age group traveled. Entire families traveled together, and it was it was baked into daily life, into da daily conversation. There was no real separation between traveling and living daily life. And I'm not suggesting that we all go back to being full on nomads, mm -hmm. but that was that that is where humans have come from. We came as world wanderers. And more recently, we've settled. There's advantages and disadvantages to being settled agrarian cultures. But uh, I think it's good to remember that travel is, is in our, our it's in our blood and our bones. Mm. It just makes me think, you know, as we move further through history, that there were periods we're just trying to understand the globe. Was it round? Was it flat? How far can we sail? How far can we go? I mean, there were just these huge questions that uh, we've always been trying to answer. Yeah, and in a certain sense, travelers were the newspapers of their time back then. Uh, even just if somebody was visiting your town from a few villages over, you would ask them what the gossip was. You would ask them what you've heard about the the realm or the kingdom. Uh, and then, of course, as 
mass media or certain forms of media came about, then you had explorers going to other parts of the world, be the, those explorers leaving from China or from Europe or other parts of the world and sharing what they saw in other parts of the world. Often they got it wrong, but oftentimes that was literally a how you got a sense for the world, not as we do now through mass media, but through people leaving home and returning home with news of the outside world. Mm. When do you think this idea of travel as leisure began? As if, you know, to, to lead a full life, one needs to get outside and go have adventures and, and see different cultures and come home. When did that start? Well, that's a good question because the word travel is actually tied into travail, which is a hardship. Huh. You know, the, the idea that travel was a leisure to exercise is, is fairly recent. And I think if you study the history of, of the Romans, for example, there were actual Roman tourists who sometimes traveled quite ostentatiously. But in the modern era, it probably goes back to the late 17th century of the grand tour that the European aristocrats took, especially out of England in the in the English literary tradition. And um, it was the idea that if you were an aristocratic English person, then part of your wealth, part of your ostentation, part of your education was to go usually to the continent, the European continent, and travel for an extended period of time. And actually, uh, the tourist industry, as we know, know it in the West, came out of this, that basically Thomas Cook and other people who created tours for middle-class people were follow, sort of following in the footsteps of these aristocratic travelers. And the aristocrats didn't like that at all. If you read the literature, they they hated the air quotes, tourists following in their steps. The, old, mm. the whole idea between travelers and tourists is, is that's an old dichotomy. Uh, but that that is, uh, we're still walking in the footsteps of those people today. The travel industry is catering to certain ideas about um, the efficacy of travel um, that go back to that grand tour era of the 17th and 18th centuries. And then, you know, I think about certain, uh, it, you know, my understanding is more of Western cultures, but of the Australians or of people in Europe that, that take a gap year. And in that gap year, you may go live somewhere else. You may travel, you may be gone for a year. And so it, it really has become, depending on where you live, just a big part of the culture you live in. It is. Yeah, we have we have different rights um, of passage for, for young people. In fact, some going back to our nomadic forebears, a lot of cultures have nomadic rituals for their young people. Uh, in Sumatra, where I traveled a few years ago, they had this ritual called Marantau in the Ninkabau culture, where basically your your utility as a young person, as you become an adult, is the ability to leave and then come back with skills that your community ne didn't necessarily have. Mm. And so the gap year is sort of a, a, a industrialized um, institutionalization of that. English people do it well. Australians do it great because Australia is not really close to any other part of the world. And so young people will leave for a year or two, you know, work as a bartender in London for a while and go to South America. It's less common in the United States, but uh, my first book, Vagabonding, touches on the idea of long-term travel as something to tuck into your life. And I'd like to think that more and more, if it's not a normal institution, if, if, if a lot of Americans are not familiar with the phrase gap year, more and more young people are considering travel a part of their education that, and let's face it, is cheaper than university education. You know, if you're, if you're 18 and trying to figure out how to expand your knowledge and expand your community, you could go to a campus, but you probably do it. You probably travel around the world for a little bit less than so many campuses these days, not to knock colleges, but really on a price point specific, it's not that expensive to travel, especially compared to uh, all the bells and whistles that come with uh, living on a campus and getting a degree. Well, you're not the only one knocking the worth of colleges right now, so I think that's a conversation yeah. we could have. But but I, I'm just going to go, I'm going to throw you, uh, we're going to go deep for one second, but when you mentioned this idea of like uh, indigenous cultures uh, taking these rite of passages that involve travel, for some reason my mind started going to things like Joseph Campbell, Hero with a Thousand Faces, the idea of myth as travel, uh, the idea that we lead these kind of circular lives that start at home and they leave home, but maybe they come back at a certain point. And that, you know, travel is is can be a circular story of individuation and adventure. Is that something you've thought about or do, does that resonate? Very much so. Um, it's, it's the old hero's myth. Um, right. I sort of became introduced to Joseph Campbell through, I think, a Bill Moyers interview he did in yeah. the 80s. Um, and it it is it is literally I think it goes back to that nomadic condition I was talking about earlier, um, or at least at least it's tied into that. Just the idea that 
you leave home in search of a journey, but then that journey is not complete until you complete the cycle home. Like Odysseus, the story we know of Odysseus is this man who went to war and it's his struggle to come home. And actually when he came home, he had to court his own wife and and he had to do some other things when he got back. But yeah, the hero's myth is is key. It's just, just the idea that not only is travel uh, a key thing for broadening yourself as a person, but coming home uh, is a part of the journey. Uh, I think sometimes in the United States, at least we have this romantic ideal of traveling forever or mm-hmm. uh, really throwing ourselves into that lifestyle when in fact, actually a healthy trip is one that mindfully goes out in the world, but mindfully returns to the world. And and even though we have mass media speaks to the world in a way that mass media doesn't, for example. Yeah. And I think the idea, too, is that you go out into the world and you become changed to a certain degree and you come home and in a sense, you you share that story or who you are now with the culture from which you left. And I'm, I'm sure you've had experiences. I I took a year off after college to travel through Asia, India, Nepal, Tibet, and I remember kind of coming back. And, you know, having lived in monasteries and, and been gone for so long. And I remember seeing some of my old friends, one of which I remember very clearly, he became a stockbroker in New York City. And we sat together somewhere in Midtown Manhattan. And our realities or the way we looked at the world were just so different at that moment that that we could still share a common story of where we came from. But our realities back at home felt so different. And you do hear that for people that take these big, profound trips. Do, do you know what I'm saying? Oh, absolutely. And in my first book, Vagabond, I dedicate the entire last chapter to coming home because oftentimes we come home and we feel so changed. We feel so enlarged and enlivened. And then we come back and our friends have about two to three minutes for our stories before they go back to the local gossip, you know, talking about somebody's <laughs> new hairdo or what's going on in the NFL or whatever. And so, and in a way, you you sort of have to forgive them that. You know, they have no frame of They weren't there. They weren't there in this. And again, I think. There's this mediated idea of what travel is. There's this consumer idea of what travel is. But until you're sitting on the banks of the Ganges or on the slopes of the Himalayas, I'm not sure exactly where you went. I I should be curious to know. But until you have those experiences in a way that is meaningful to you specifically, um, then that's when you move past these mediated ideas of how the world is. And and, and there's a lot of applications, including... um, Countries that are supposed to be dangerous, countries that are supposed to export mm. terrorism. Mm. Um, one, one of my favorite places, actually, I loved traveling in the Middle East 20 years ago. One of my favorite places uh, was Syria, which is probably not safe to travel to now. But I can speak to the full-hearted worldview of the Syrians that I met with. The Syrians were great, awesome people. And you don't really read much um, in many parts of the world about what it's like to be a normal person in this part of the world. Because we sort of have a man bites dog news environment, you know. Yeah. That, that sort of clickbait is not happy things. It's 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 the lower part of our brainstem that's about fear and anxiety. And if that's the only way we're seeing the rest of the world through our screens, then that's probably not going to be a full version of the world um, that it, that involves hanging out with uh, with normal people in the street and realizing that we have so much in common. Mm-hmm. So, what do you think COVID and this the extended quarantining did? to, well, not just the travel industry, but really us as humans that want to travel. I mean, so many trips were delayed for years and some of those trips still have not been taken. So what what do you think the impact of that was on, on all of us that wanted to be out in the world? Well, it's interesting that so many of the stories about what is going to happen to travel during COVID were about the travel industry itself. Um, just, just the idea that the travel industry was was taking big hits, and that's true. But if you look at the history of travel literature over the over the years, it has always co- coexisted in times of plague and in times of war and in times of panic. That travel is a very resilient human activity. I think as individuals, one problem we had, I can't complain about COVID too much because I met my wife in Kansas during COVID. Uh, uh But um, I think what happens is that it really forced us back. I've talked about the mediated world, seeing the world through our screens. For a long time, we had no other option. And I think we, we... we're able to appreciate how unhealthy and ha- how anxiety inducing it is when you're indoors seeing the world through your screen all the time. I mean, uh, viral infections notwithstanding, um, sort of having uh, an ecosystem that was purely digital, um, while it has its uses, it probably wasn't good for mental health. Mm-hmm. And so I think getting out and having having adventures in the physical world, and, and one, speaking of my wife, that not long after we met, we went on a 
what we called a micro adventure, not my word, but I love, I love the concept. We just decided we were living in North central Kansas. We decided we were going to walk to this town called little Sweden that was 22 miles away. And so we just walked for seven hours and you know, it was, it was during COVID and we didn't really come into contact with that many people in the countryside. Um, and it was just such a great, it was a great physical adventure, but it was so great psychically to sort of embrace travel close to home in a way that was, was healthy and fun and how, allowed us to discover how exotic it could be in that 22 miles that I usually drove instead of walked. Yeah. I mean, I think that was one of the little, you know, joys or ways in which those found meaning during the pandemic was, you know, people bought bicycles and mm. they bought hiking shoes and they went out and had to walk around their neighborhoods. And that that can also be as profound an experience as, you know, sitting on the Ganges. They're very different, but <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Well, it's, it's, it's almost like you're exercising the same muscle, you know, mm. it's, a, it's a different weight on the bar. I don't know how much I want to stretch the metaphor, but, but the actual physical act of travel, in fact, I'm a huge fan of walking. People often talk about bullet lists or bucket lists of things they want to do on the other side of the world. Go any place in the world and walk for an hour and odds are you'll find something amazing and true about that place. And that's something I found very close to my home, but it's something I found. I'm sure you found it in India and Nepal as well. Almost anywhere in the world, just sort of physically, it seems so strange that we've come to the point in history that sort of physically insinuating yourself into a place as opposed to just sort of digitally interacting with it. Uh, is good. It's good for your health. It's good for communities. It's it's good for your education about how the world is and how the world works. And actually, you know, we we get on apps to find recommendations for restaurants. When actually we have this app called Our Nose, you know, like following mm -hmm. smells is a great way to find food almost anywhere in the world. And it's easy to forget that sometimes. One of our early shows on Life Examined was with Timothy Egan, a great journalist, and he wrote a book, Pilgrimage to Eternity. Mm. But, but it was essentially about the art of walking and contemplating and how those two are so deeply interrelated. And I, I find that to be true more and more, and that some of the, my greatest experiences anywhere traveling we're just putting one foot in front of the other. Yeah. Actually, travel in general is good for creativity. Um, I know that sometimes like staring at your computer, trying to solve a problem as a writer, I'll use that as an example because I'm a writer, is a different task than going out and letting your brain sort of react in a different way. You know, you're in an environment and you're taking in all sorts of different factors. And that's a good thing. Um, I want to read that Timothy Egan book, by the way. Um, but in several ways, you're using your brain in a different way when you're in unfamiliar environments. And they say that, the, that your hippocampus actually becomes healthier when you allow yourself to become lost, mm. that your brain is more engaged in a place in, where instead of using the GPS on your smartphone, if you're using a map, if you're uh, going into a dead end and turning around and, and learning from that experience, that's actually healthy for your brain too. And I think a lot of people actually use Timothy Egan's book, but um, people like uh, Goethe and um, gosh, there's there's other European philosophers, Word, um, Wordsworth, um, walking was a part of their creative process mm -hmm. that actually getting out and being in new environments allowed them to turn over ideas in a way that they could not do at their desks. And, mm -hmm. I, and you don't th I don't think you have to be a writer or a philosopher for that to happen. I think having this um, dynamic relationship with home and the outside world, be it walking or flying to the other side of the world, is good for you in so many ways. Yeah. And to me, I, I love the cognitive example you brought in there because maybe, maybe our listeners or you have had this experience too. When you're trying to find a place for the first time, not on your phone, but but just through your own devices, no, no pun intended there, your own faculties, um, mm -hmm. time is different. Time mm -hmm. changes in the process of the finding. And it's very different than the process of returning when you already know the route back home. And I always found that so interesting. It's like, you know, it, it seems like things could take forever to get there, but I think that's because you're so alive to the process of it versus walking the same path that you have a thousand times. Yeah, I think it's it's safe to say that neurologically time slows down when you travel. And I think I, in my new book, uh, The Vagabond's Way, I quote Paul Theroux saying, it's almost as if the years of travel are not subtracted to your life. You know, you're, you're living in this newly engaged way. Yeah. But I think that's why when you come home from a journey, going back to what we were talking about earlier, you feel like you've had this expansive period of time, even if it's only 
two months or two weeks or two years or whatever, time has been so stretched out for you because you're encountering new things, because you're using this brain, your your own brain in a very vulnerable way. Um, you've experienced that time in a different way. And so it's really hard to compare that two weeks, two months, two years with your friends back home because they've been experiencing time in a more habitual way. And I'm not going to knock habits. I mean, you have to have habits to make your day efficient. But one of the gifts of travel is to sort of blow those habits open and be vulnerable and almost childlike in your relationship to the world again. Mm. Just to stay with time here, I, I another book and just that that had a big impact on me and the way I thought about travel was Moonwalking with Einstein by Joshua Foer. This is all about memory in a memory palace, which I won't get into now. But but the importance of travel often, I think, and I, I want to get your thoughts on this, is that time can kind of become a long blur when there are no punctuations of difference within it, right? There's no diversity of experience. And the argument that he made is that um, there's a certain richness to understanding our own past when there have been these kind of big demarcations of time, which often can be through taking trips to places or taking adventures that really pulled us out of uh, the ordinary life that most of us lead day to day. Yeah. I mean, this ties into a, a philosophy that underpins my new book, The Vagabond's Way, my first book, book Vagabonding, which is time wealth. The idea that mm. our truest form of wealth in life is the time that we own. Uh, and there's so many ways to squander our time wealth. So oftentimes it's chasing uh, material wealth or chasing money. When in fact, on our deathbeds, we probably aren't going to think about you know the 20th week we did in a row with basically the same routines. We're going to think yeah. of extraordinary moments. We're going to think of our children being born. We're going to think about uh, the sun rising over the Himalayas. Um, when the clouds cleared and after five days, you finally saw those mountains for the first time. You're going to be thinking of things. You're going to be thinking of ways that you spent your time to to enliven your life. And in a way, um, you talked about memory in, in the four book. In a way, on your deathbed, to use this as a metaphor, it's those memories that are going to be precious. It's those times when you sort of came to terms with the nowness of life uh, mm -hmm. instead of sort of having the scheduled world where you're sort of comparing your past to your future. There's almost something spiritual about the idea of embracing the now moment. And it's something you can do at home, but I think there's something special about being in a completely unfamiliar environment and just sort of feeling your life in the moment. It's a, it's a great thing to, that to happen and it's a great way to actualize your time wealth. And again, one thing I, I tell readers of my book is that think about your own wealth in life as a matter of being able to spend your time in a way that enriches your life because mm. there's so many there's so many uh, financial and material uh, things we throw in front of our time thinking that that's wealth when in fact wealth is just very simple actually. Yeah. And I don't know about you, but I, I feel like I'm starting to feel a shift in, I mean, I'm kind of part of this millennial generation. I'm, I'm a little older. I mean, I'm 38, but um, that suddenly, and maybe COVID did this as well, that people really began to suddenly ask themselves, how am I spending my time? Hmm. Why am I spending it 40, 50, 60 hours a week at a job such that I can travel? And this is what you hear, you know, so I can afford to travel for two weeks on a luxury vacation so I can de-stress, but I'm not really de-stressing because I got to go right back to a stressful work environment anyway. But like there has been this call, I think now for things like four-day work weeks or 30-hour work weeks. And I, I know of people that are saying, I'll sacrifice some of the money so I can have an extra day off and actually go lead my life in a way that feels meaningful. Do you see that shift happening around us, albeit even if it's a slow one? Yes. Uh, and I think, you know, things like COVID have enabled the idea of remote work, um, which I think wasn't taken seriously as much as it could have been before COVID. And suddenly it's like, yeah, why why are we committing for another meeting, you know, that yeah. we can have virtually uh, and we can work from home? The, the idea of the two-week vacation is nice. And it's nice that that was sort of institutionalized a little over 100 years ago. But a lot of the rhetoric about the invention of the two-week va vacation is the idea that it will make us more productive workers. Uh -huh. The idea that, that it's not just it makes your life better, but the idea that you come back rested and you'll be more efficient. Um, and that's sort of a sad analysis of, of how we spend our time in that way. And not to knock two-week vacations, uh, 
Um, but I think the relationship between uh, work and life is something that we're given a chance to reconsider right now. And there's different models. There's different. We can see that other people are sort of living in a dynamic way. You know, I'm I'm based in and talking to you from Kansas right now, which is which costs way less to live in rural Kansas than a than a more fashionable big city. Mm. Um, it can be called geo arbitrage. That basically I can cash out in time. You know, I, I just have to work less to pay my expenses in a place like Kansas. People do it, digital nomads do it in other parts of the world. Um, I spend less of my time to make my to, to meet my basic requirements. And so I can use that geo arbitrage to be richer in time in a certain sense. And, and so I think as we see each other through our screens living certain lives that are about digital nomadism or geo arbitrage or four day work weeks, um, yeah, I hopefully we can we can move back to the idea of a life that is centered around its experience rather than these material metrics by which we seem to be have become addicted in the last century. Mm. You use the word digital nomad. In my sense is you probably had a big impact on that word and and kind of espousing that that way of living. And um, how, how have you felt about those that have have done this? I mean, uh, you know, travel with a laptop and Airbnbs for two years, go live in a van in which you're in a different part of the country every other week and, and work again on some type of device. Do you, do you find it's a, an enriching way of life or that it can also be, you know, come with its own pitfalls? Well, it absolutely is an enriching ways of life, but it's not a silver bullet. You can mm. still be a workaholic, but you're in Tbilisi, Georgia, or in Cancun instead of being back home in Indiana, right? Yeah. Um, and so I, I think one, and I, actually in The Vagabond's Way, my new book, I have a couple of mini chapters dedicated to the idea that don't just go and be a digital nomad because there's a fashionable hub for digital nomad workers. Because what happens is you take your home habits to this digital nomad hub. You don't really meet that many local people. Um, and it just becomes less and less of a travel experience. So I think my first book, Vagabonding, influenced the digital nomad mo movement. And um, I think that that is a great way to live. But you still have to hold yourself accountable uh, to why you why you're moving around uh, anyway, I think social media complicates and encourages this in in some ways, just because you can sort of advertise the life you're living on the other side of the world through your Instagram account, for example. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but at the end of the day, it's those quiet things that really can't show up on your Instagram account that make it worth it. And uh, yeah, don't don't spend sixty hours a week working to just um, make more money in another part of the world. Find ways to make it dynamic. And so I think it's fun. I mean, digital nomads number in the millions now worldwide, and it's not just limited to people from Western countries. Mm. But part of the conversation within the digital nomad community should also be about quality of life and about leaving yourself open to new places and not sort of creating living in a little bubble that's separate from the other people who live in the part of the world that you've taken such an effort to move to. Mm. I'm fascinated by your decision to stay in Kansas versus living in some very exotic place. Part of me feels like I may understand it. I, you know, I remember going to some really beautiful places. I have this one image of going to St. Croix, for example, and uh, met this, uh, an expat there. And, and, and she had said, you know, I just wanted to go try and live in paradise forever. But when you really spoke to her about what it was like to live in paradise, it wasn't that fun, actually. Mm. Like it was kind of a grind and the infrastructure was really brutal. And I think what I was hearing is like, ah, I, I'm not sure if, you know, just being here to make it work, to be near the white sandy beaches was definitely worth it. And I guess I have noticed this a little bit in my travels. I, I'd be curious to get your thoughts on that, though. Yeah, well, I think sometimes we we superimpose the idea of paradise onto our work life. So the idea of drinking a cocktail on a beach someplace sounds like heaven. Mm. Well, then you then you get there and you're drinking the cocktail, and after the seventh day in a row, you feel kind of bored in paradise, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. And so I think finding dynamic ways to live um, is good. And actually, one reason why I returned back to Kansas, which is where I grew up, is that I realized that. Um, everywhere I went in the world, especially developing countries, families pooled their resources to get um, assets in in real estate or through their vocations. And basically, I this has been 18 years ago now, I bought some land with my parents and we had two houses on one parcel of land. 
Uh, and it was really a great uh, a great way to live when I was home. I still traveled most of the year, but I had a home to come back to. It made me closer to my family in a certain way. And we forget that sometimes. I think we're hyper-individualized as Americans, and we forget how much of people's happiness globally comes from their families and being close to their families and splitting um, expenses and, and labor with their families. Um, my nephews, who also live very close to here, they were basically raised by their grandparents, my parents, because they lived nearby to each other. Mm. And so- in this day, we're also very, it's it's very dynamic. You know, my, my wife is an actress. She's from Kansas. She lives in Kansas, but she was on stage in DC for the last two months that, that she can in an afternoon be on the East or West coast and do, do her job as an actress. And so I think there's this exotic idea of digital nomadism, ind- independent location living that sometimes applies to those white sand beaches, uh, in distant parts of the world. And that's great, but it also allows us to find places we love near our family and have a dynamic relationship with the rest of the world while we're living there. I think you're hitting on something important, which is the, the need for community, whether we're at home or traveling. I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I've traveled to some crazy places and alone and I've been alone and yeah, they were meaningful, but like a lot of things I remember were also shared experiences or meeting the people in the place. It wasn't just the sunrise or the wave that that there is still something important about the need for just, you know, interpersonal connection in the journey as well. Yeah. And, and it's amazing how easy, how simple it can be to, to interact with people locally. Um, Be it just sort of asking somebody about a certain food and how it's made or taking part in a local soccer game in the village square, yeah. or or going to a local class, even if you don't fully understand the language and learning how to cook something or make something, um, that there's something really beautiful about the quotidian in the world. Um, one of my favorite experiences in Egypt was getting a haircut there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it took like two hours and had 23 steps and cost me $6. And I really, it was really just sort of a delightful way to spend a couple hours. It was a haircut, you know, nobody puts that on their bucket list, but I had a window into a, into that certain corner of Cairo that I wouldn't have had, had I not submitted to a haircut. And so I think this idea of social capital of meeting people and, and comparing your life to the others, other people's lives and getting a window into their lives is much easier than you might think it would be because it's just a matter of finding ways to make your interests intersect. For example, right now, as we record this, um, the Morocco is about to play in the World Cup. I know, right. Uh, and I would like, next time I go to Morocco, if I go to Morocco in the next year, I'm going to wear a jersey, a soccer jersey because I think people are so excited about soccer in that country right now. Um, and so that's just one window into a place. Who would have guessed a few years ago that the, that everybody, the thing everybody would be talking about in Morocco is soccer. But it is. I mean, people everywhere love their sports. They love their families. They love their hobbies. They love food. Uh, they love all sorts of things about a place, and that's one fun thing about travel is finding different windows into the experience of a place. And if you're just joining us, this is Life Examined on KCRW, and my guest this hour is Rolf Potts. He's the author most recently of The Vagabond's Way, 366 Meditations on Wanderlust, Discovery, and the Art of Travel. So why do you love to travel? How has travel changed your life, beliefs, or how you view the world? Share your thoughts on our Facebook page. You can find it at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined. We'll be back with Rolf Potts for part two of this interview after this short break. Stay close. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard traveler and author Rolf Potts talk about the importance of being open to the unknown when we travel. Great reviews online don't necessarily lead to having a memorable experience. So how has technology changed the way we travel? And are travelers today spending too much time looking down at their phones and not up at the experiences around them? Let's jump back into part two of my conversation with Rolf Potts right now. You and I probably have shared a similar experience in that, um, well, I can just speak personally, that 
I, I traveled pre-internet and I traveled post-internet. I traveled pre-iPhone and I traveled post-iPhone. You know, I think of my earliest trips were probably much like yours, some ragged old little guidebook with maps and you stumble out of the train station and you got to just figure out where you're going versus now you get out and Google Maps location and it shows you where to go. And I, I wonder what have we lost or even gained in this kind of, you know, experience of being in the world of the phone and also knowing what was there before? Well, we've gained a, a degree of access, you know, it's just so much more information at our fingertips. Uh, there's less fear involved because you don't have to, because you can see other people doing what you want to do. You can see people <laughs> interacting with the place. What we've done is that sometimes we've limited our options as travelers because we're sort of all in lockstep in a certain way. And we're not leaving ourselves open to surprise uh, that we're following our phone. We're looking at a screen and, and as a window into a place that we've traveled so far to, to come to instead of just sort of following our nose or following our eyes or following our ears. One of my favorite experiences in Damascus, Syria years ago was hearing gospel music and following it to a church and meeting these Sudanese refugees and having a great mm. afternoon with them. And so I think allowing yourself to be surprised is something that's harder to do now. Um, that almost when back in the paper guidebook era, when you had a little neighborhood full of hotels that was in your guidebook that you went to, you were forced to leave yourself open to those five senses experiences and surprise a little bit, where now you can sort of have your entire uh, experience virtually and through your phone before you go to a place that you sort of turn yourself into a consumer of place. Instead of being mm. surprised, you know exactly what you're expecting to get. And then you compare your experience with your expectations. When in, in fact, the best gift of travel is just allowing yourself to be surprised, stumbling into serendipity, having a bad time and realizing that it's not as bad as you thought it would be, being able to adapt in certain ways that we all did before we had smartphones. I think we forget sometimes how easy it is to adapt, how helpful people are, uh, if need be, and how we can figure it out and have a great time doing it. Yeah, I completely agree. And what I don't like in myself is just how inept and scared and paralytic I feel now arriving to a new place without my phone and an internet connection, you know? And I just think about recently going back to Mexico City in the last four or five years, one of my favorite places. And I used to go there a lot as a child because we had family there. And I was meeting a friend and I was thinking, okay, how am I going to get to his place? He's like, oh, just call an Uber. You don't have to, don't even mm. worry about it. You don't have to, you don't have, you don't have to communicate. You don't have to speak to anybody. Just call an Uber at the airport and you'll be here in 20 minutes. And I was like, wow, well, that's convenient. But now I've just, there's no chance for serendipity. Now I think I'm just being swept off by technology to the next place. And with that, I think is, is kind of sad to me, you know? It's sad because we have so many other resources that actually humans are pretty good at orienting themselves. I have a similar experience having just spent the last six weeks in Washington, D.C. I would be frustrated with myself by over-dependence on my phone. Mm -hmm. I, would, I, I, I was going to places where I – like the National Portrait Gallery where I went more than once. I, I, I sort of knew – I knew I could get there on my own, but I was using my phone – just sort of on a, on a random intersection. I knew I was within three blocks of where I wanted to go, but I was using my phone to orient myself. And so my head was down instead of up. And this yeah. is, I've, I've written about this for 20 years and I still find myself uh, subject to this. And so I think we have to actively remind ourselves that we don't really need the phone and that humans have these, uh, these elegant systems, including their noses and eyes that help them get around. And that actually you meet more people asking for, for directions. You interact with the place more when you put your phone down uh, and ask people a question than you do when you're just following your phone around like um, some sort of strange treasure hunt in the digital world. Yeah. And you have very famously traveled with virtually nothing. And um, I, I wonder if you could share a little bit about how you suggest we travel is it is it totally minimalist is it uh with some stuff i mean what for those that are like i need to you know i'm ready to get back out there and do it in a different way what would you tell them well travel by its very nature forces you to be a minimalist because unless you're prepared to take 20 suitcases you can't surround yourself with all the things that you have at home yeah. and going back to the idea of habits moving away from your physical possessions and your physical environment is part of what makes travel fun and healthy um uh, let's see, 12 years ago, I traveled around the world with no luggage or any bags. Um, 
and I, I had a sponsor and I kept a lot of things in my pockets and I washed my two sets of clothes every day. And there was this sense before I left on the trip, I've always been a min minimalist travel, but I thought the adventure is going to come in solving these problems of what to do with no luggage. Yeah. Well, actually within a week, I sort of had my routine down and it stopped being, I stopped worrying about traveling with no luggage. It actually was pretty easy. I was cleaner than I was usually because every day I washed my clothes and, and put them back on. Um, I had nothing to lose about nothing to worry about losing because um, I was carrying very little and it was a fun experience. You know, I, I, that was my only no baggage trip, but it's the day. One of the gifts of travel is that it gives you something new everywhere you go. Why bring 10 sets of clothes when, you know, travel is not about fashion necessarily. It's about not what you, you carry on your back. It's what you see in front of your eyes and it's who you meet and, and how you surprise yourself. And so, well, I'm not an absolutist about travel minimalism, I think uh, it's good to to remind yourself that you really don't need that much when you travel. You know, wash your clothes more often than at home, and take fewer of them. Uh, take fewer electronics, um, a minimum of toiletries, because you don't really need that much. You don't come back home from a trip and think, "I'm really glad I brought those five sets of shirts." No, you think about the sunrises and the people you met and the the soccer game on the village square. Um, yeah, so I'm a big fan of going minimalistic. Similarly, what are your thoughts on like traveling just to hit the big sites, you know, going to India just to see the Taj Mahal or something? Do, do you think that's the way we should be approaching travel or it should be a little kind of more nuanced or diverse than that? Well, those are tied in like the Taj Mahal is a bucket list item. You know, the, yeah. the, Grand, the Grand Pyramids of Giza are a bucket list item. Those are great and it's worth visiting. But the whole point of the bucket list, as I, as I say in the Vagabond's way, is to get you out the door. And so, sure, you can tick things off, but odds are you're going to find something in a neighborhood 12 miles from the pyramids that's going to be way more memorable. And God, I'm a big fan of the, the city of Cairo in Egypt, just market culture and, and um, just the friendliness of people in Egypt is something that is way more interesting to me than the bucket list things that you're going to check off. And I think these days you, you can visit a pizza hut within a few minutes of the Grand Pyramid of, of Giza. Um, yes. So bucket, there's nothing wrong with bucket lists, but at the end of the day, it's the things that you find along your way. It's the willingness to wander one mile, two blocks away from where all the other tra travelers go and, and finding ways to surprise yourself. Because again, if you only travel in the footsteps of your expectations, then the best can happen is, is that your expectations will live up to your expectations. Mm. Whereas if you allow yourself to meander a little bit, then you can enjoy a, a place. You know, a, a story I often tell is about Paris, where I teach a writing class every summer. But oftentimes my students will come and get really nervous because the restaurant service is so slow. You know, that oftentimes, you know, it's like they want to see Paris. They they want to eat their lunch and run off and go to the Louvre or, or see the Notre Dame. And the waiter isn't coming with the check yet. When in mm -hmm. fact, the most French thing they're doing is a long lunch. French people don't rush off to, to, <laughs> uh -huh. to see to see the Louvre or whatever. You know, that actually the most French thing you can do is savor a lunch that stretches across three hours and talking and arguing ideas that I think sometimes we're so fixated on the objects, on the items on our bucket list that we forget that the evocation of a place doesn't usually exist in its bucket list. You can see the Taj Mahal, but as you know, since you spent time in India, you know, wandering down any alley, sampling food, trying, you know, just seeing the amazingness that is India that has nothing to do with the perfection of the Taj Mahal, but seeing the beautiful imperfections of a place like India is why you should go there. And so, yeah, I think for anyone who's listening and is thinking of planning the next tra uh, travels, find ways to just give yourself some free time in a place, not to micromanage an itinerary, mm. but leave yourself a few days or even a few hours where nothing really happens. And you can either sit still and let a place move through you, or you can move through a place following your curiosity rather than a, a list that you sketched out before you ever left home. And now you're much smarter than when you created that list anyway. Yeah. And so many people, I, I think, are attracted to the ideas of these, of these curated tours because they provide a sense of comfort and safety. But I also agree that they don't necessarily allow for those kind of interesting, uncanny, strange, wonderful experiences. But but for those that, that like 
to have, you know, a feeling of safety or comfort. What would you say to them that, that are kind of maybe scared to go to a place like Cairo or to walk through those markets? You know, I think a lot of people have some reticence when it comes to going to those those places they consider maybe to be unsafe or, they, you know, they may not know what would happen. Yeah, well, uh, do your research. And this just means getting past those man bites dog headlines and just sort of seeing what other travelers are, are seeking and finding mm. in a place like Egypt, for example. You mentioned curated tours. I'm not going to be a snob about curated tours. I think sometimes there's really good ones. And usually the, the best ones are local people who live there. Take out the middleman, show up, and then find Mustafa who can show you his neighborhood. Yeah, He, he makes a little bit of money and you have a much more organic um you know, sense of that place than through a tour company that was organized through Dallas or whatever. And so one tip with curated tours in mind is go to a place like Egypt and spend the first day on a curated tour just to get a sense for things, just to talk to things, just to get, you know, your, your A-level idea of what there is to do in this place and then give yourself some free time. Just because you take a an organized tour doesn't mean you have to spend your entire journey taking organized tours. Uh, and, and sometimes an organized tour or a structured activity like a cooking class, for example, is a crash course in the place. And then you end with, with a much more sense of familiarity and a sense of safety, really, because statistically, most every place in the world is no more dangerous. Like the, the, I think the most dangerous things travelers actually do are like riding a rental motorcycle without a helmet or swimming in unfamiliar waters, yeah. which is something that can happen anywhere in the world. That basically, yeah, don't walk home drunk through a sketchy neighborhood at two in the morning, just like you wouldn't do at home. You know, use common sense, get some information, make some friends. Again, get your hair cut. Uh, and you'll find out that there's just ver some very quietly delightful things to do everywhere you go, uh, be it on a formal tour or be it a couple of days after your formal tour when you're being a little bit more brave and, and striking out for some new ground. Mm. And just a side note on tours, you probably have seen this a lot more than me, but there's some really unusual and strange tours that are available now. I mean, I've traveled, I remember being in, in Nairobi and there was the option to take tours of, I, I believe is the largest slum in all of Africa or black market tours. Or I mean, there's just some of this stuff, I kind of wonder ethically what they mean or if they should exist, but I'm, I, they are kind of fascinating seeing the kind of experiences that people are looking for out there. Yeah, well, I think this is sometimes called dark tourism or slum tourism, um, but it doesn't need to be an exploitative, extractive experience. Uh, um, mm. I spent some time in Rio before and the favelas have this bad reputation yeah. as being a dangerous place where you shouldn't go. But actually there's great art shows. There's great restaurants in the favelas. And so if you just find, uh, again, you don't want to be uh, reckless about this, but find a local person who can find you a guide, just sort of a local person to walk you through the neighborhood. And it need not be a dichotomous thing where you're the industrialized person walking through a poor neighborhood. It's like you're paying a, a local guy good money to show you the best place to eat and where the hot new artists are hanging their paintings. And I think that it need not be seen as a, thing that's totally separate. Of course, you should be careful when you're in favelas, but actually in Rio, you're probably more likely to get pickpocketed in Copacabana Beach or Ipanema because that's where all the tourists go. You know, there's an actual and active pickpocket economy in those parts of Rio, whereas tourists don't usually go to favelas. And if you have a local person, a local guide, somebody you pay a little bit of money to show you around, then that's probably as safe as going to the central tourist districts. And I'm, this is not to knock one thing or the other, but to just say, it's a both and situation. Both things can be interesting uh, if you just take enough precautions to sort of know what's out there and and know how you can give back. Another great thing about hiring a local guide to see a poor neighborhood is that it puts money into that poor neighborhood, yeah. which is one of the one of the great things that tourism offers to the world. Mm. Well, as we begin to kind of close close out, and I don't want to end on a very dour subject here, but how do you reckon? With the question of of travel and airplanes and CO2 emissions and wanting to go everywhere and see everything and gobble up all the experiences, but also recognize that we're in a climate that is that is changing because people want to move around so much. Yeah, well, I think it goes back to not having too many bullet lists on that to-do list mm. of travel. I think that oftentimes digital nomads who move to a place like Colombia or the Republic of Georgia they actually fly less once they're there because they're taking local trains and buses and share taxis, as opposed to someone who's just sort of doing business uh, regionally in the United States, taking six flights a year, right? Uh, so there are ways to travel in an exotic way without being over-dependent on flights. Yeah. You can actually go around the world 
Oh, well, actually, if you if you're willing to to go for go a few hardships and travel on freight ships, you can travel around the world without flying at all. Um, <laughs> but I think we forget sometimes that the most interesting experiences in a place like Thailand, for example, you go north to south on a train that's really amazing, and train culture around the world is uh, is really fun to experience, and it doesn't have as as many emissions. You know, there used to be the banana pancake trail through Southeast Asia. It's sort of a facetious term, but it's what the where the backpackers traveled years ago. Well, now that they have these cheap local flights. The banana pancake trail is less interesting than it used to be because people just fly to Bali from Bangkok instead yeah. of going to Malaysia and then to Singapore and then Sumatra and then Java and then Bali. Well, you can still do that just because they have cheap flights doesn't mean you have to put a bunch of missions in the air. Stay on the stay overland and go those hardships. Don't fast forward your way through the world with a bunch of flights. Slow down a little bit. And so I think there's an extent to which travel anywhere where it involves a flight is going to be environmentally um compromising in some ways, but actually you can travel in such a way that you are actually flying less than, than just sort of an average person doing business in the US. So I think, again, it goes back to being mindful about that. Or if you're really careful, if you're really worried about this, take that 22 mile hike out your front door, you know, mm -hmm. take a road trip, take a, take a train trip, the length of the West coast. Um, and that's, that counts as travel too, that you can have an epiphany uh, on a mountaintop in Tibet, or you can have an epiphany in a Tibetan restaurant, you know, 20 blocks from your home. It all counts and it's all good. And it's all worth the effort that goes into it. And the thought and the humility that surrounds an act like travel. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite guests and authors, and I know, He's also one of yours as well as Pico Iyer. And I always love chatting with him. And he he reminds me of the places he think are so important to travel to. And he he lists countries like Cuba, Iran, Japan, obviously, where he lives, Vietnam. I'm curious, like what what are the places that have touched you the most and that you would say, you know, I if if I could recommend a place to go have your world just shaken and flipped around, here's where I would go. Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan of Cuba too. I went there about 15 years ago uh, and was just amazed by Cuba and Cubans, you know, just, just how Cubans uh, could live with less and how just how uh, smart and creative and engaged they were with the world. I, I was mm. a big fan of Cuba. Um, I'm a big fan of Mongolia in, in part because it reminds me of my own home landscape. It's like Kansas on steroids. It's like <laughs> grasslands for as far as you can see. And again, that's a culture that uh, is still pretty nomadic and just sort of seeing people who live their daily lives through the eyes of mobility is, is really fun to see. You know, I was a little bit of a snob. I, I sort of cut my travel teeth in Asia rather than Europe. Like most Americans go to Europe first when they go overseas mm -hmm. or, or to Latin America. I went to Asia. And so I thought, well, what does Europe really have to offer me? Why are so people so impressed with Paris when I've been to, to Delhi and I've, I've been to um, Bangkok? Well, Paris is a beautiful and wonderful city and uh, shouldn't be passed up on, on the, through the guise of reverse snobbery. I keep going. I'm a big fan of Kansas. I know your listeners will probably raise an eyebrow <laughs> at that. It's my home. Um, but I'm one of some of my earliest travel experiences were my science teacher father driving me on field trips through the grasslands of Western Kansas. And it made me understand that a place doesn't need to be super exotic or have big mountains or beaches to be really fun and interesting. And that if you look in a subtle landscape, you can find things that are exciting as other places. So as much as I can recommend specific places, I think sometimes it's it's following what you love. It's, it's, it's going to a place and finding out what people do there as much as any specific set of destinations. Um, but yeah, Cuba, Mongolia, uh, Paris, uh, those are all great places. Patagonia. Uh, I went to Norway for the first time this summer because my wife has Norwegian cousins there. I went to the Faroe Islands. Fantastic places. And I hope I continue to surprise myself in my travel career as I collect new places. I want to continue to to challenge myself to find new places or at least new perspectives on places I've been to before. Um, as Pico Iyer will attest, um, Travel to new places as well as returning to old places is one of the joys of uh, of being alive and, and the human experience. And um, yeah, I couldn't recommend it more. I've been speaking with Rolf Potts, travel writer, essayist, podcaster, and author, uh, recently completed Vagabond's Way, 366 Meditations on Wanderlust, Discovery, and the Art of Travel. Hey, thank you so much, Rolf. I feel like this could have gone on for another hour. It's so fun to discuss the world and travel and ideas, so I appreciate the time. 
Yeah, it's been great talking, Jonathan. And yeah, well, to talk India, we didn't even scratch the surface of it. Both, <laughs> both spent a lot of time there. So yeah, for sure. All right, that's it for this week. The producer of our show is Andrea Brody. We hope you enjoyed today's discussion with Rolf Potts and invite you to share your travel experiences, whether near or far, on how important travel has been in your life. Join us on Facebook at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined for a link. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Have a wonderful day. We'll see you next week.